You're not going to arrest me? Don't you think you should arrest me? I don't know. Perhaps he thinks it's a prank. Frank! David! Look, I've had enough of this foolishness. All right, come on, there's nothing to see. Come on, move along. It's hopeless. Come on. Let's go. Leave me alone! You people are crazy! I gotta do so, I gotta get out of here! David, don't lose control! Your control? What control? This is In The Cut, and hello, I'm Jesse. I am joined by John, as previously planned. The, the purpose <laughs> <laughs> This is In The Cut, and hello, I'm Jesse. I'm joined by John, as we had always planned. We also, by a nice confluence of events, have Aaron uh, here. All three of us are going to talk about American Werewolf in London. The Kind of the timing lined up with Aaron and John being able to record together and get together to watch the movie, and... That makes it extra fun. I'm, I'm excited to do this. Anyone who was looking forward to getting rid of Aaron for one episode <laughs> is going to be now bummed the fuck out because we snuck him in, even though he's been in the last, I don't know, dozen episodes, I guess. And uh, anyone expecting a break from him is going to be sorely disappointed. Well, I could, I could kill him halfway through. That would be ideal. Well, let's see how it's going. Let's see how okay. it goes. Yeah. With, you know, I, I, I don't want to plan out too much. You know, it has to be a little bit improvised. Okay. We watched the classic and wonderful John Landis movie, uh, 1981's American Werewolf in London. Uh, I'd been really looking forward to rewatching this. I hadn't seen it in many, many, many years. And uh, I want to start with what you guys thought of it. Well, I, I've got to say this right off the bat. This this movie was the high watermark that I've always used in judging um horror movies or uh, creature features. Um, I saw it when I was pretty young and so many of the images and, and um, scenes just stuck with me for such a long time that it's firmly entrenched in, in my, uh, the way I appreciate uh, horror movies today. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, rewatching it, you realize how many just moments are just, permanently stamped in your mind and this has been the case with a couple of the movies we've talked about on the show so far and and it's it's uh it's a real testament to the power that film can have that that these things are just like indelible in in our minds i mean and particularly i think the werewolf transformation that's probably the absolutely everyone who has ever seen that movie that's one of the best pieces of you know practical makeup effects it's unshakable just ever yeah and i mean this is this is a bit uh, i mean a bit of trivia about this movie that i think it's one of those things that everybody knows and they everyone thinks they're the only one who knows this but (laughs) this is this movie led to the creation of a academy award for special effects i did not know that. yeah this was the this was the uh, inaugural winner of that category of the Academy Awards. Um, I thought your piece of trivia was going to be that uh, this werewolf effect was actually created for the Howling. No, I really uh, I don't even know that story, and I, I want to get to it. Don't really know that story either. Oh, okay, um, it's too bad. I uh, I think it's a pretty good story. So everyone, at home, go <laughs> go look up this movie. Turn I, off the podcast. I, I have some <laughs> trivia. I have some trivia as well. Yeah, you and I were. We were going to look at uh, Darkman, yeah, which is another uh, really special effects heavy movie and the, special effects reliant movie. Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the um, 
the lady who played the nurse in American Werewolf in London, mm-hmm. uh, Jenny Agater, also played in Darkman as a nurse. <laughs> this poor girl. <laughs> no, she was great. I, I, I liked her a lot. She was the, probably the most consistent acting in the movie came from her. Half of the comic lines that really hit, I think, were hers. Right, and, and delivered really nicely and dryly. Mm-hmm. There was her. there was some comic lines in that that movie that didn't didn't quite get the delivery they deserved. Can we talk about some other components of the comedy, like how it the the timing was was off, but it also had like weird aspects of Monty Python's flying circus scenes and like bosom buddies, 1980s type sitcom, uh, kind of verbal exchanges between, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's John Landis. And I mean, that's what, that's what he's known for is, you know, I mean, the, you know, trading places, blues brothers, there weren't any werewolves in that movie, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the buddy back and forth, um, Fantastic comic dialogue and fantastic comic timing. Um, I was actually just uh, earlier today. Um, I was just thinking about kind of why I hate pretty much all of the comedies of the '90s, or at least you know the mid to late '90s, um, and how much I love you know the comedies of the '80s. And, and thinking about it for a little while, I realized that it was pretty much all just John John Landis. <laughs> you know, there was a few others, but. So, I mean, he was, I mean, he was the guy. I mean, he made some almost absolutely perfect, you know, comedies that just, I mean, he is an entertaining man. Um, what uh, what struck you as uh, Monty Python? Um, yeah, I well, get that. I, the, the buddy thing <laughs> seems like just from from scene one, I, I get exactly what you mean about, about the kind of like goofy, obviously reading off a script, kind of riffing off each other buddy comedy mm-hmm. stuff that's happening. But the Monty Python stuff, I, I mean, it's I don't really have a, a deep experience with Monty Python. So, you so might... I, I would say that the uh, the scene where the, the main doctor is in his office and he's visited by the two Scotland Yard uh, agents, that almost reads like a straight up Monty Python sketch Mm. and the behaviors of the younger detective, uh, fumbling with the, uh, the little, what are those? They're not bedpans, little kidney tray, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of things on the floor and almost walking into a closed door. It almost seemed like that was a shout out to Monty Python on it. It just totally felt that way to me. It was, the jokes, it didn't quite land as, like, being genuinely funny. Like, ah, that guy just totally yeah. dropped those things. There but- was a the slapstick that I, I kind of almost thought more uh, Laurel and Hardy. And there was a, huh. you know, because John Landis is, you know, I mean, just, he, he does that. And there was even, like, a little, like, I think uh, there's, like, the kid in the park had a Laurel and Hardy comic book. Mm-hmm. The kid in the hospital? Um... The kid in the park only had balloons. the balloons. I forget which kid, but there was definitely a the kid strong, in the you know, zoo big had framing the shot around. Uh, um, right. Was there a park? Maybe not a park. Maybe like when he was in Piccadilly Square. Okay. Two things about that is one is John Landis obviously wants every single character in the movie to be a character. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like everybody has to have their quirky whatever. Um, but also that. Part of why it worked was that the slapstick was dialed back ten percent. <laughs> he didn't literally like faceplant into the door, right? And he 
he honestly was trying to pick up those like metal little bowl plate things and wasn't like he kept dropping them or anything like that. He was really felt awkward by it. Like they just dial it back just enough that it clicked. I thought I felt that was, uh, I felt kind of the same thing about, I mean, that whole kind of opening sequence is, I mean, just obviously like, I mean, you don't quite want to say parody, but you know, touching on a lot of early yeah. horror movies, touching on the original Wolfman and, uh, you know that I mean, just that that scene of a couple of travelers stumbling into the you know <laughs> the inn and uh, yeah, and, it's, you know, it's always fun when a movie really wears its influences on its sleeve, and this one especially, like like yeah. literally that the, he has two conversations talk, you know, two characters <laughs> having a conversation about where it's coming uh, from, but but they don't you know make any of those characters just like you know overly comic characters. It's you mm-hmm. know it's a little funny and it's uh and and it works. What did he say? He said that tomorrow I'll turn into a monster. Do you believe him? Do you believe me? I believe that you're very upset. I believe that you loved him very much and that somehow you blame yourself for his death. Did you ever see the wolf man? Is that the one with Oliver Reed? No, the old one. Mm, I, I don't think so. Bella Lugosi bites Lon Chaney Jr. and he turns into a werewolf. <laughs> Why are you telling me this? No, listen. Claude Rains is Lon Chaney's father and he ends up killing him. <laughs> so? Well, I think that a werewolf can only be killed by someone who loves him. <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think that, uh, I, I mean, I, I kind of wanted to talk about what didn't work and then talk about the the exceptions to that. But but starting with the exceptions, um, or re- really rather starting with why it just transcends any shortcomings it has. One of the main things is that the comedy is funny and the horror is effective and it clicks those together, you know, like a movie can have scary horror and funny comedy, but also still kind of be schizophrenic where it just feels like it's bouncing right, between right. two different movies. And this never felt like that for me. They, this it, it gets really silly, like a guy running around a zoo <laughs> stealing balloons to cover his penis is like silly, but it also doesn't seem shoehorned in. It's a it's a natural extension of the circumstances in the movie. It's interesting that you say that because I felt that the uh, the timing was always off by a couple of beats, and it it kind it it subdued the the comedy enough, like like you were saying, it, uh, the pratfalls only only went about ten percent, but um, the entire movie was off by just like a beat and a half. So I think that that lent itself to the the horror the horror aspect it wasn't like you see a lot in contemporary horror movies you know the routine is fake scare fake scare real scare mm-hmm. and this didn't quite have that because the timing was just off enough and um i think a really good way to illustrate that is even in when they were in the porno uh cineplex right see you next wednesday see you next <laughs> wednesday even in that there were there was an element of setting up the scene, having the pacing going for the scene. In this case, they're fucking and boobies are flopping around. 
And then all of a sudden some dude walks in and he, he breaks all of that momentum <laughs> by being like, I told you to, you know, that no. whole that whole thing. And then it happens a second time with the werewolf. And I don't know if that's genius comedic timing <laughs> at work or if it's... Um, what do you mean it happens a second time with the werewolf? What scene is... In the in the same in the same cineplex, uh, sex is happening, and all of a sudden a werewolf jumps out of the first Bobby. So I mean it's it's the same kind of breakbeat that's being applied both in the comedy and in the horror, and I think that's where those two things really pair up very nicely in this film. The porno jokes were so good. Just, the, <laughs> the just porno jokes just, were so fucking good. Um, just her getting a wrong number call. <laughs> And yeah. just be oh that that's I mean that is just and and I mean the guy coming in and being I mean just it's such a trope you know I, I'm the angry husband and right either he's supposed to join in or whatever and they're just like oh wait I don't know you people <laughs> see you later right you know it's either gonna go he flips out or he joins in and it's not either it's just like oh sorry I mean it's really <laughs> British like the joke is kind of British in that way <laughs> and that's actually when you were saying um, Monty Python uh, thinking about it not necessarily that I mean actually that is a great example also but the uh, uh, dialogue with the ghosts when the ghosts are telling him to kill themselves uh, kill himself uh, I could absolutely see that being a Monty Python sketch where they're just a little exasperated with him and a little <laughs> Even the porno is it reads like a Monty Python sketch. Um, you you know that that's a John Landis uh, like signature thing. To every movie he has ever made has contained a reference to a movie within a movie called "See You Next Wednesday." <laughs> I did not know. That. We we almost never actually get to see the movie itself like we did here. <laughs> but even in other movies where it's referenced, it's a completely different movie in every one. And and is there an actual film? See you next Tuesday. An actual porno? And, and it's, well, there <laughs> no, there's not. It's it's the okay. it, John Landis's joke is see you next Wednesday, which is a riff off see you next right. Tuesday. But also, it's it, as I've read. Um, see you next Wednesday is the last thing what's his pickle says in 2001 when he's video chatting with his parents. <laughs> And that's what What's John made. <laughs> yeah, what's what what made John Landis really fall in love with that phrase? See you next Wednesday. <laughs> is that he saw that in two thousand one, and I'm sure in his mind related it to see you next Tuesday, and just made decided that was going to be his eternal in joke in every movie he made. I think uh, some other characters that really shined in this particular film uh, was Miss Piggy and Kermit the Frog. Mm. <laughs> and to my knowledge, this is the only one that they've ever. Uh, the only horror movie with, um, you know, exposed breasts that, and penises that they've mm. ever been involved with. Um, you're getting pretty specific, but I think you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying to... I'm you, you know my... that Frank Oz uh, was in the movie, too? Like, as himself? Or right. like, I was, was going to bring saying uh, yeah. John Landis' signature thing. Frank Oz is in pretty much all of John Landis' mm. movies. And uh, I think John Landis is in some of the Muppets movies. Hmm. Uh, although I'd have to uh, look that up, uh, but yeah, Frank Oz was the um, uh, what do you call them? Uh, Hobo. <laughs> I would. I want to call him an ambassador. The uh, oh diplomat. Um, diplomat. Okay. okay, so the diplomat. I the, the I was watching this. I've, I've seen this almost six times in the last month uh, or last three months. The diplomat looked his behaviors and mannerisms, and if, almost if you close your eyes, 
it sounds like David Cross being played by somebody other than David Cross. <laughs> by being played by Kermit the Frog? Because <laughs> I couldn't help hearing also, that. Uh, Frank Oz also kind of looks like David Cross. So, <laughs> he um, almost had it nailed. Or at least they were bald people. <laughs> You've got to believe me, David. Believe what? That tomorrow night, beneath the full moon, I'll sprout hair and fangs and eat people? Bullshit. Oh, God damn it, David. Please believe me. You'll kill and make others like me. I'm not having a nice time here. Rick Baker's special effects, you know, uh, really was the thing that, that held all of this movie together. Even even after the, uh, the terrible car accident scene outside of the... Porno, porno movie. I mean, that was one of the worst. I mean, it was slapstick, and you know there was shit wrong with all of the props. If if you look, one of the cars that slams into another car, the body's already hanging out of the front window, bef- like out of the windshield before the impact even takes place. Even despite that, the monster makeup just kind of made you somehow turn a blind eye to all of the other stupid <laughs> shit that was going on. The werewolf, I think, overwhelmed what would normally be a, a part of a movie where you're like, this this just looks terrible. Well, one thing is, I, th- I think that the, the kind of the chaotic smash-up climax worked really well. I, 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 thought, I thought that that clicked for me. And, and it was surprising because it clicked because it relied on, like, deft editing. Yeah, and that's was... something that the rest of the movie had really fucking sucked at. <laughs> like, really, it was terrible. It would like cut people off. Like, at the, it would clip the end of people's lines when it was cutting to the next scene. It would. It the the cadence was really like uneven and it's kind of like awkward, and there was just a lot of like jumping around, and it just felt like it wasn't. Like a lot of this movie felt like it's never gonna win an award for anything that makes a movie good traditionally. <laughs> Like editing, writing of dialogue, <laughs> acting, <laughs> and and so so that scene, the the kind of the big smash up chaos ending thing, which is pretty much editing is the only thing that makes or breaks that scene. Uh, I thought I was surprised that I I thought they did pull it off in that scene. Yeah, that feels like a scene where they may not have had the budget they wanted, and uh, you know didn't necessarily get the shots they wanted to pull it together, and really did have some editing magic to make it work i think they really they pulled a miracle out though a little bit with it because it it's it's kinetic and and it and it fits and and the the, the kind of the cadence of it feels good yeah. everything they, feels where, causal yeah in, uh, yeah even though it obviously um, is never just a smash happening well, uh, one thing is uh, he did plan that scene really carefully i think um and and that's a that's a place that they don't really let people shoot movies very often. But he kind of because he had planned it so well, he was able to get the necessary permits and stuff. And that was actually Piccadilly Circus. It was. really was, yeah. But they didn't have to shut it down for as long as they maybe may have needed to if it was a less tightly planned scene. And 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 you're I mean you're right that the the result is chaotic and it really has to be saved by editing because there's no real logical cause and effect happening in the scene it's a lot of like chaos but the editing really doesn't make it work whereas i think uh, i mean on the flip side of that there's there's the scenes probably the first half of the movie anytime that you see a a or the werewolf a you know the initial werewolf or the you know our main character david as a werewolf the attack sequences are really like 
just sloppy slideshowy like like have you ever seen a movie where they have to cut in stock footage of a wild animal because <laughs> they can't get an actor in the same you know within a hundred miles of a wild animal all of the werewolf attacks were shot the same way where it's like cross like cutting back and forth between them and like just like jumping back and forth, like really just uh, in like shaky cam and you can't tell what's going on and it's but like, I, why, I why did they bother? They have a guy in a werewolf suit. Like, well, I feel like a big part of that was there was a conscious, real conscious decision not to really show you the werewolf in the beginning, <laughs> um, and that maybe, I mean, and maybe in the in the filming they had given away too much of the werewolf and they had to had to cut that or, or something. But uh, I think it was a really good decision not to <laughs> let you see the werewolf. Until. It was, it was, but it took me so out of the moment when you're, when you suddenly go into this, like, well, this could just be anybody with $5 cutting blurry <laughs> shots together of a, someone shaking a werewolf mask in front of a camera. And what I was thinking was like, think about how those scenes would have played out. If you had done it with two decent stuntmen, one good werewolf costume they already had, a trampoline and a really really wide shot and you just had one guy just like bailing and like having a real kinetic there's a lot of like build up that they do really nicely by cutting around and kind of dodging showing the thing and 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 showing the area that they're in and creating a nice sense of space like especially i think the london underground stuff that they shot and none of that is something i would change but the actual moment that your werewolf hits your victim Think about how different it would be if that wasn't just a bunch of super tight, close shots of like blurry werewolf nose <laughs> and like bad makeup and blood. And if, if it was just a sudden kind of relatively wide shot where you were maintaining the mystery of what this creature looks like by zooming way out. But you still get to hit have this kinetic connection moment where it, tack, it, it like it gets him. I think uh, I think. Aaron might have been onto something with needing to preserve the big reveal, and what what's leading me to that is um, throughout the dream sequences, the Nazi werewolf monsters they don't look totally like like werewolves, and the scene where he pops out of bed, he looks like some kind of a vampire. Like I think they were trying to. I'm to- I'm probably totally wrong, but I I suspect that that was done partly uh, with preserving the the big theatrical reveal for the transformation scene, so that you get that big. You know, the transformation scene is where you get to see the werewolf. Yeah, that's where you. I, get I think to see- you're totally right. About I think that. you're a hundred percent right. Yeah, uh, and, and and it's a little bit of kind of like misdirection, kind of visually. That they're they're doing before that, uh, and but but I think they could have accomplished it not by zooming in so much that you can't tell what's going on and it's a silly slideshow, but by zooming out so much that you see that someone's being attacked by a werewolf, but you don't get any def- like fine definition of its features. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they could have also the all of those early scenes were just ridiculously overlit. Um, yeah, just the, as they're walking through the marsh, that for reasons unknown they walked know, off the path, and now they're just <laughs> wa- apparently what I mean that was. The movie got better and better as it went on in almost every way. I, I for some reason I loved the lighting during that scene. It it felt more surreal and dreamlike hmm. with uh, the lighting being that that crisp 
than if they were actually walking around under full moonlight. I think, you know, they were way overlit, but I, for some reason that just added a quality of, um, you know, surreality to it that I don't know if it would have had otherwise. Uh, yeah. Um, I was also thinking those early scenes might really, I mean, they might have really been going for the look of, uh, you know, earlier films. Hmm. I, I feel like there was a lot of reference in this movie I missed. Hmm. Really, either, either, either of you, have either of you uh, seen the film Cat People? No. There was it was um, there was an original that was a real classic, and then there was a remake which had uh, Malcolm McDowell and Tits. Caligula. Um, <laughs> I know it's a movie called Cat People, oh. and uh, a, a lot of references. I mean, they must have been to the original because I think the remake actually came out a few years later, uh, maybe right around the same time. Uh, but the scene with him waking up in the zoo—that's right from uh, hmm. right from that. And I was. I'm, there must have been other scenes because I was actually before the scene where he woke up in the zoo I was just kind of thinking about that movie and I don't remember exactly what it was that triggered that but there must have been some other references and then yeah the scene him waking up naked in the cage in the zoo is right from that movie hmm. a lot of the thematic stuff I mean I think there's a little bit bit of the you know werewolves werewolf sex um, I think Cat People's movie the, the first movie to really I doubt it's the first. Every movie's every movie about werewolves is about werewolf sex secretly. Huh? <laughs> um, it's about werewolf sex. I mean, they're, they're just. I mean, there's. It's, it's, you know, he's mourning after his transformation. He's like every scene is him trying to get laid, and he's just well, constantly the, all over the lady. Doesn't the werewolf kind of represent repressed desires? Like right, that's right. The, that's the whole thing of it. Is it's. Yeah, letting out your beast, beastly instincts in the fucking Malcolm McDowell cat form. <laughs> I've lost my mind. I woke up in the zoo. The zoo? What did I do last night? You don't remember? Well, I remember seeing you to the door and then uh, saying goodbye, getting locked out of the flat. Then I came in through the front window. I started to read, and then I woke up naked at the zoo. I was worried about you. We didn't know where you were. Oh. Where did you get that coat? <laughs> what, what What was your guys' feelings about uh, David in the lead role? Like, the actor? I think he did a good job... God, I hate... I'm throwing up in my mouth saying this. I think he did a decent job of portraying a man who uh, was really weak in his convictions... He was unable to go back and save his friend. He was unable to stay by his friend's side and protect him. He he fled at the moment danger showed up. And then he was also unable to kill himself knowing, feeling that he was going to kill other people. He, he in his human form, is very weak and unable to uh, commit to anything. And I think that... Uh, he did a good job of of portraying that because the werewolf being the uh, kind of repressed desires and the powers and animal uh, animalism that is the werewolf. I think uh, I think they counterbalanced each other pretty well. I don't feel like he delivered all of his lines perfectly. I feel like the timing in some of the jokes was kind of off and felt unnatural and a little bit forced. Yeah. Um, I mean, my my take on that is, I mean don't 
quite know whether to blame the actors or the directors, but it is obviously a director that is used to working with like some of the funniest fucking people in the world. Like, mm. I mean, I mean, he's a guy who you know has Eddie Murphy, and he can give Eddie Murphy his lines, and you know he's gonna say I'm fucking funny. You don't <laughs> so, have to give Eddie Murphy lines; you have to give uh, him cocaine. He kind of he kind of trusts the actor too much with the delivery of the comics, right? Stuff. Well, I think usually he doesn't have to because I mean he really did spend most of his career working with just some of the funniest people uh, throughout the eighties, right? I mean he and, he just uh, is allowed to just trust them to carry it, right? And um, because here here was my impression of that actor was that. He did really like it, kind of counterintuitively. The more intense the scene was, the better he did. I think that the transformation scene would have been so easily ruined by an actor just not playing it quite right. The like crazy intensity mm-hmm. of it. Um, I think that the scene where he's really flipping out and trying to get arrested, right, um, was really intense and. There are a couple scenes like that, like where he really surprised me by making them work and pulling them off. And yet for most of the movie, when he he's playing a lower key guy or a guy who's trying to figure out quite what's going on or whatever, he just really was unconvincing and kind of like detracted from the movie. The fact that he just seemed a little amateur hour to me. So it was I had a weird experience where like the more difficult the scene was, the better he seemed to do in it. And the, and the more inane a scene was, the worse, like the more he stood out <laughs> against a background of relatively competent actors. I think it's kind of interesting that you say that because I I really was not sold in a lot of parts where I thought he was supposed to be really selling yeah, the the hospital scene where he first encounters his, uh, his best friend who's been mm. chewed up and looks like shit is, you know, maimed and, and he, gruesome. You're right. He does terrible in that scene. Whereas Jack, the guy he's encountering, is doing awesome. Exactly. He Like, in fact, him, Jack in that scene is probably my favorite thing in the movie. <laughs> that was also such a wonderful piece of makeup. Oh, yeah. Uh, that first time he shows up. Um, when he's all fresh, that was, I love that. No, you're. I think you're. You're exactly right. That 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 that's that's a perfect example of him being overshadowed by the movie he's in, and and not and not living up to the scene. And he's because he, he's he's meant to be downplaying it to some extent. He's kind of has a suspicion that he's just having a weird hallucination or dreaming or whatever. He's not supposed to be freaking out in that scene. He's supposed to be kind of playing it cool, and he's just is really bad at that. He just seems like a clumsy actor when he's doing that <laughs> whereas jack just completely just is like he it's it's so like natural the, the way he plays that scene uh i love it i absolutely love it and 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 jack is is so much fun to watch throughout the movie because as his instead of his character developing to be a more desperate or a crazy thing his makeup develops to be mm-hmm. a more crazy and that really reflects the kind of this movie doesn't really have the ticking clock when it comes to Jack because he's just like, come on, let me like free me from this prison. Um, but it's not like there's a deadline he's working against, but it's obvious that it's like becoming worse and worse for him. And yet the entire time he's just really like plays it the exact same. And I think that was a directorial decision that was really smart because it trusts that actor to 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 do that and carry that. He he makes him he, he makes the the actor makes Jack so much fun to watch because he doesn't take himself too seriously and he doesn't get too hammy like he's not he's not totally serious but he's not totally like jokey 
whoops, my eyeball fell out. Let me pop it back. You know, <laughs> nothing like that is happening. He's just it's like, not Scrooged. Yeah. Well, that's maybe a bad example, but because <laughs> I love Scrooged, of course, it's perfect movie. But he's just like, I'm your good friend. <laughs> you and I have a rapport. Kill yourself. <laughs> just fucking kill yourself. And like that, how you make that work in a movie, I have no idea, but they did it. Like, I really thought they did. I don't know. I can't think of a movie where they spend like at least 10, 15 minutes of screen time convincing the lead character that his moral obligation is to kill himself. <laughs> I can't think of anything to compare that to. I, th- I think a lot of zombie movies have done that. I, th- I think huh. that that's often a big, uh, yeah, you know, that, that once you're bitten, what, you know, do you, um, what do you do then? I, I feel like lots of, uh, I, I mean, I can't think of a really great example right now. And uh, I think often it's not great. <laughs> I think it's sure. uh, a sure. lot of zombie movies feel like it's an obligation to just have that scene. I like that he realizes why he should. Mm-hmm. He's still looking for a way out. He still tries to get arrested because he thinks it'll save him from having to kill himself. He still tries to look for other explanations for this these visions he's having and these explanations of where he's coming from. Um, but, but when he's like, maybe I should kill myself, it's not like this hemming and hawing thing. He's like, no, I should should probably kill myself. That's, that's a, that's a big thing to tackle for a, for a kind of a splat sticky, like, I don't, I don't know, werewolf movie. Yeah. And, but, but mostly just that Jack wins me over as the pal who's like, here's the right (laughs) thing to do is kill yourself in the audiences with him in that, um. You're you're right. I think that this is something that a lot of zombie movies have people force force their characters to reckon with. But I can't think of another werewolf movie that does it. Like the original Wolfman. I mean, that's which is a movie I haven't seen for since I was a kid. But I mean, that must that must be a part of it. I think they're just the two the two characters or the two manifestations are so compartmentalized that the the human form never really has to take responsibility for the actions of the werewolf farm in those movies you're right it is okay well what do you say we go in for a little food huh drink rest the slaughtered lamb that's kind of strange where's the lamb it's probably inside getting cold come on no really what kind of ad is that for a pub i don't know would you rather the hilton all right but whatever happens it's, it's your fault. fault. Right. All right, come on. What do y'all think about... I mean, is it significant that he was an American werewolf in London? I mean, there was... I mean, so many just, like, American and English cultural signifiers um, splashed around. Was that a... I don't was think there a purpose the, to that? Well, I don't think for the horror themes it really mattered. I think that for the comedy themes, it was a real fish out of water thing, mm-hmm. and and depended on that to to carry the plot forward. I think it also relied on him uh, being a stranger in a strange land in order to end up on the moors in a situation where he could be bit by be bitten because if he was a local, he mm-hmm. would have known to stay indoors and not right. go out into the moors. Right. Well, he could have been from London because, um, I mean, one ridiculous thing about this movie is, you know, if you're bitten in the moors in (laughs) Northern England, they're probably not going to take you all the way across the country to uh, London. I mean, I think Manchester might have a hospital or 
Um, well, maybe those maybe those guys just wanted they knew they knew they had defeated the werewolf that had been tormenting them. They knew they had a new one on their hands, there. and they're like, "Let's fucking put this bitch in London." Because I it's, I don't really like those people anyway. So, so the other thing that I, I I find interesting about this particular movie is that the London that is depicted in this film is a lot more clean and cheerful than the London I have seen in just about every other film. I watched uh, Attack the Block recently. And it's a completely different place. Than, well, that's East, East London is, you know, a completely different place. I mean, that's like, you know, saying, you know, Berkeley at Oakland or... They're not um, the same. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it wasn't a lot of <laughs> locations. I mean, it was filmed in, I mean, Piccadilly Circus and a couple of exteriors just, you know, and then uh, the zoo. And that was pretty much... And the subway. Yeah, and, and you know, all very iconic... Uh, tourist parts. I mean, it's the parts of London you see as an American tourist, it's definitely uh, not the parts of London you probably know as a Londoner. Um, I think yeah, very I think, much I mean, was, I think was, was the a, London of a tourist. And and right, and that's it. It is an American, you know, in London, and 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 the settings and everything reflect that. And the fact that it's directed by an American guy shooting this a lot, not in London, <laughs> too. Uh, like all the Moors stuff was all shot in the United States. I, I I found out what state it was, but now I forget. Yeah, some of those exteriors were very sound stagey. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, even the interior in the pub. The, yeah. The laugh. The laughter sounded canned. It was weird. <laughs> One thing I liked about the pub sequence was that it's such a trope to have your hero or heroes get that kind of like dire warning from the locals thing Mm -hmm. me and aaron have recently watched you know cabin in the woods which obviously made a big joke out of it what i liked about this one was that they didn't leave that behind in fact when the when the guy when the heroes of the movie left that pub the camera stayed in the pub and the people in the pub had to have a kind of a moral conversation about whether it was right to leave them to you know leave them to the wolves for lack of a less pun horrific way of putting it. And then, the, and then that comes around again. And then later in the movie, it's a major plot point that, that they lead the doctor to the revelation he has and stuff. I, I like that. It wasn't just a throwaway, like, Oh no, don't go into the moors. Okay. <laughs> later <laughs> disappear thing is that even they seem like characters and the pub seem like a permanent thing. Well, I would say that 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 moral dilemma that the um, the locals had with the boys going out onto the moors was immediately reflected when David left his friend to die mm-hmm. at at the claws of the werewolf. Like it was almost the same kind of behavior, you know. Uh, oh shit! Terrible things are about ready to happen. It's a, I it's don't a, want anything to do with this. It's been it's a major point for you that he chooses to run in that moment. It seems like absolutely. Um, I mean, does, is there even a moment moment where he has a chance to act before he's dead? Yeah, because he spent it running away from the werewolf. <laughs> oh, you mean uh, Jack? Jack doesn't have a chance. He's he's taken down immediately. But David gets up and bolts. But doesn't he, I mean? But doesn't he see his friends? corpse and then he runs he doesn't no 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 it's, it's his still, friend okay, gets tackled and he takes off and yeah i mean I, and then he is- turns around and goes back and, and i think that's i think that it's if this movie were made today he wouldn't have immediately bolted he would have done he would have struggled and then decided to bolt or something like that 
awesome. And in this movie, he bolts and then thinks better and goes back, but it's obviously way too late. I thought that was interesting. But I, I think and, that... And, and that decision that David made is a key thing to you in, in understanding his character, it sounds like. Well, and I, I was going to say, it ties in with the, the behavior of the um, the locals, because that's exactly what they did. They, they were like... Uh, we're not going to deal. We're not going to take any action. We're not going to be responsible for the outcome. We're not going to try to, you know, do anything about this. And then there's a moment of real distress, and then they decide that they need to go do something sure. about it. And that's sure. the, that's the same line of action that took place between David and uh, and his friend. Right. Uh, you know. Well, there's an argument to be made that if David kept running, then the werewolf line would have ended there, and several more people wouldn't have died. Uh, I mean, it's a funny thing. Supposing because by, he stuck around for the villagers. Because by, cha- by challenging the, by challenging the source of the evil in this movie, you're also giving it a vector to continue. I think the villagers maybe should have just gone ahead and shot the werewolf beforehand. They probably should have <laughs> shot it before the Americans even showed up, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like if you just have to go out and shoot the werewolf, then... And it would be in their best interest, and they would get an opportunity almost monthly to do it. <laughs> right. Well, maybe, I, I don't know. Who the, knows, the current werewolf, werewolf could have the, been, uh, right, the guy who went out to shoot the one before, and, and was, <laughs> it was turned by it. Um, so, so maybe they were a little uh, gun-shy on that. So the other thing, uh, speaking about you know how the werewolf is, you know, the lycanthropy is transmitted, one of the things that I liked about this is that it, it still maintained that kind of... Uh, supernatural power aspect and it didn't try to relegate yeah. everything yeah, a, to a fucking disease. It's a lycanthrope virus. Oh no! <laughs> Fortunately, silver will cure mm. this virus. Mm. You know, they didn't have any of that schlock contaminating the film. It was like, yeah, werewolves like, have like the moon. Werewolves and vampires should be magic. Science vampires <laughs> and science werewolves are bullshit. <laughs> it's the first werewolf movie I've seen where the characters know that werewolves exist because they've seen the wolf match <laughs> because they've seen other werewolf movies right like that's it is the first movie of any type i think i had seen when i saw it originally where the people in the movie know what kind of movie they're in mm-hmm. do you know what i mean um i mean this movie came out the year i was born so obviously it had been out for some time by the time i actually saw it but um it was it was the first I saw where where that was kind of there was kind of that realization where mo- the movies exist in the world of the movie and um, one one interesting movie writer who's uh, I can't I can't remember where I where I read this and I, I feel a little dumb. There's a movie writer that calls that calls the moment in the movie where the characters in the movie know what movie they're in mm-hmm. the ghost ship moment. As a callback to the terrible 90s horror film Ghost Ship. But because it's a so, it drives such a perfect point of like, there's a moment when they realize they're on a ghost ship, right? They realize they're not in a, like, a movie about exploring a derelict ship and having revelations, but they're on a haunted ship where it's like, okay, well now this, now everyone in the movie knows what kind of movie they're in. That happens kind of early in this movie because everyone, or because the people in the movie are media savvy and because Mm -hmm. they know they've seen, uh, Wolfman style movies before. I just wanted to mention that the movie ghost ship was the absolute peak of, uh, 
flashlight beams making noises in movies. <laughs> <laughs> Back to your point. <laughs> now, I'm really sorry to be upsetting you, but I have to warn you. Warn me? We were attacked by a werewolf. I'm not listening to this. On the moors, we were attacked by a lycanthrope. A werewolf. I was murdered. An unnatural death. And now I walk the earth in limbo until the werewolf's curse is lifted. Shut up. The wolf's bloodline must be severed. The last remaining werewolf must be destroyed. It's you, David. I think this was probably my first, the first time I've seen a movie where it had a dream sequence within a dream sequence. Yeah, I noticed that too. And I, the I, dream I, sequences themselves didn't seem particularly strong. It seemed like they could have achieved the same effect without them. Right, but it, it completely broke the fake scare, fake scare, real scare uh, mm. thing because it was just like, ah, oh, that was terrifying. Oh, here's another terrifying thing. Mm. And well, here's the thing about, I mean, I think the fact that the first time he sees his friend as a ghost is after waking up from a series of those. I, I think there is a, are the ghosts real or are the ghosts not real thing in that? Or or what do you guys think? Are the ghosts definitely, are there actually a ghost? He's pretty definitely actually a werewolf. <laughs> but it seems like they are casting some, they all- maybe, the, maybe he's crazy, maybe he's not crazy. But he is a werewolf. There's a there's a moment there's a moment where they even cast aspersions on whether he's a real werewolf when the doctor is trying to explain like well maybe he's been so convinced by this like mythology on within which he was attacked by this lunatic or whatever yeah. that maybe he even thinks he's a werewolf and da da da. I don't think that would hold up. I think you're right that that it, it, there's no question that there's a physical werewolf in the in this movie, but but whether he's battling kind of the demons of his own psyche or whether he's actually being confronted by these literal it, spirits of the dead. They, they did explain question. that a lunatic is ten times stronger than a normal man. Oh. That's a science fact. All oh, right, you can tell because there's a number in it. <laughs> don't lift weights. Yeah. Just, just go crazy, doctor. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I wish I could say the movie worked equally well either way, but I think that no, it only works no. if you're little. <laughs> he bit a guy's head no, off. No, I mean, I mean, as, as far as far as the second question of of whether he is he's being haunted by demons of his own actions or whether he is actually you know, having these visitations from supernatural, like undead people he's killed or yeah. led to the deaths of. I think either way, it's it's critical to the movie that he's being haunted by his own actions, mm-hmm. or in the case of you know his earlier like neglect of Jack and letting him die is inaction in that scene. Jack, I think, importantly, never calls him out on that. He never says like you're. It's your fault. I died. He's always nice about it. He's just like. You kind of fucked up by becoming a werewolf, and now you have to deal with that. Also, let's talk about the girl I wanted to bang. <laughs> it was love. Did, did, Jack, did Jack degrade exceptionally fast? I mean, he was David was released from the hospital and had like three days before he was going to start killing people. And over the period of that time, right. uh, Jack went from like, I've got some hangy, flappy bits on my face to chattering skeleton. Yeah, I think that was something that that was just kind of a mess. Like, I mean, it was definitely like it was almost a full lunar cycle later when he wakes up 
and sees him for the first time, right? Because it's right. Uh, full moon is like in the next couple of days. But every time so we see David out. transform is within the within one or two days of each other, right? And um, and and so and so all of Jack's degradation. There has been thirty days or what, 20, 20 so How how long is the moon? Yeah, how long is the all moon? I'm right, saying but, is that his friend would have only but he, looked but, like. But but from where yeah, he starts uh, to where he ends is only a few days. Right. right. Maybe you age faster in limbo. Who knows? Yeah, I think it was just they had that idea of yeah. they came to grade and they built the. Yeah, no, I I, I think they that they that. <laughs> I'm glad they let the ex like exceptional makeup effects dictate the plot rather than vice versa. <laughs> There's only one bed. I'll be perfectly honest with you, David. I'm not in the habit of bringing home stray young American men. Well, I should hope not. I find you very attractive and a little bit sad. Go on. I've had seven lovers in my life, three of which were one-night stands. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but... Perhaps you'd like to watch telly whilst I take a shower. Well, it's a marvelous night for a moon dance With the stars above in your eyes Grand perilous night to make romance Need the cover of all Taurus skies All the leaves on the trees are falling To the sound of the breezes that blow What did you guys think of the soundtrack? Um, the songs was, had moon in them. It was all <laughs> winky moon songs. And here's my here's my take on that. It really would have fucking bugged me if the songs themselves didn't just work in the scenes oh. they were in anyway. I thought they really did. I really thought they Red did. Moon Rising worked so good. I thought they and, were. Uh, I thought they were great because a, a like a, a director of comedies knows how to juxtapose tonally different song with a really like a, a kind of a silly light song with a really intense visual scene and things like that were handled really nicely. Mm-hmm. And I think they should have used the Billy Holiday version of that one song. I think they got they got all the songs they could get the rights to. <laughs> <laughs> but I think no, I think they the way they used the songs really did work. And and because it's such a stupid obvious joke that they just picked Moon songs, I wouldn't uh, otherwise have expected the songs to work in the scenes. I thought they would have been dumb, um, but they worked. And and they don't use any for the kind of the main climax of the movie and then the smash to the credits they use a that pretty, was so good yeah that last scene was so, i mean i i love how that movie ended um and that's one of the things i actually remembered remembered about it was, they uh, cut they cut too quickly from the wolf form to alex the girl to him in his normal form. I wish they had just let a <laughs> little bit of real run between the two so it didn't seem as jarring um, I, I thought the jarringness was just worked. I, th- I thought the okay. fact that it's like you kind of expect something more and then not giving it to you. And uh, and I, th- I think if they had stretched that out a little bit, that not giving it to you would have felt like kind of a cheat. But the way that it was so brutal and abrupt I wonder, made it work for me. It almost feels like it's a holdover from a, when they were maybe making the movie. This, this might be way out in left field. 
The fact that nobody ever sees him transform and the fact that when he transforms back from werewolf to man is abrupt and you don't get to see any in-between stuff, it almost supports the idea that maybe at one point this movie was meant to be that he only ever thinks he's a werewolf and never physically transforms at all. Yes, or at least that that's an interpretation. And the way that the way that really abrupt cut at the end happens almost seems like if that were the movie they were trying to make, that would have perfectly driven it home. I don't think the movie holds up under that scrutiny as as it was released, but it's possible maybe they thought that was going to be an alternate interpretation they were going to support early when they were making the I movie. have another hypothesis to yeah. to posit. What if this was a this was a horror movie designed to be watched by werewolves? <laughs> Imagine a universe where everybody is a werewolf. It explains why it's lycanthrope films, it explains why all of the music has moon as a running theme. And what would be more horrifying than dying as a plain man in the street. Mm. No. No. Don't, don't give it too much consideration. That was just... <laughs> I got bored listening to what you were thinking, and then was just imagining if I had watched the movie as a werewolf. Okay. <laughs> if you saw this movie for the first time today, had never seen it before, and no one told you what year it was made in, what year would you think this movie was made in? Um, I think I would have it within that five-year time frame. And um, I absolutely wouldn't myself. Um, more from the writing than anything else. I, mean, hmm. I think the uh, effects are off, like way ahead of their game. But the, that kind of... I mean, I feel like it had a kind of pacing and a slow build that you really... You know, it's five years later, you would ne- you never got again. Um, like, yeah, that really letting things happen and things settle and giving you lots of moments that aren't don't have any werewolf action just you know once once well it's, there really was really like an action beat every few minutes it seemed like and in the beginning they really had to carry that but with those hallucinations because they really seemed like they did want something mm-hmm. to happen viscerally every few minutes and and yet the plot of the movie demanded that he slowly transform and slowly realize what's going on which is why those dream sequences were important so it 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 seemed like it had it was really forward propelled for the whole thing, but moreover, like even even not considering how way ahead of their time the the practical effects were, it seemed like just a lot of times you can watch a movie and just from the way the lighting is and just from the way the makeup is and just from the way the sets are laid out and the shots are framed, you can really tell what decade it was from, and all else being equal, if I walked into this movie completely in the dark, uh, I would have thought this was like a 90s movie at the at the earliest. I would have picked it as late 70s, early 80s. As really? Well. You um, would have gone the other direction then. Uh, only because... It was probably filmed in the late 70s, I mean. The, um, there's some of the things with the, the creature effects that, that are still done... Okay, like the um, the hand, I think, was probably the one that, uh, that has the most impact it's where he looks over and he sees his hand elongating mm-hmm. and he's shrieking and howling in pain and and it's this it's a really good scene but it's obvious that it's a puppet hand placed directly behind him and he's looking at it making these facial contortions 
and you see that same kind of thing in Terminator. Uh, like Terminator Two had a really good one uh, with the same, almost the same kind of effect. It wasn't elongating, but it was like a robot hand. But I think they'd refined that shot and that kind of effect a little bit more by the time Terminator 2 came out. I, th- I think that that was a very early presentation of that particular shot. You know, by the time the 90s got around, I think that that was a pretty well played out visual effect. I think people had pretty much got that down by rote by then. Yeah, I think a, a lot of the... There was very, very little fancy cinematography. And I, I think particularly in like horror movies, they, I mean, they love... A fancy shot. There was a couple of crane shots that happened as the movie went on, but very little like, you know, clever for its own sake stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, also, something about the color palette really, I think, dates it for me. Um, I, think I think so too, and that's and that's kind of what I was talking about with, the, with how it's lit and how it's shot and how the makeup is, but. A, but it still put it more as a '90s movie to me, and I don't know if that's. <laughs> Like eighties movies, they just don't have any dark blacks at all. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely like color post processing. I mean, that like the early nineties was when I mean so much of that post processing. Man, I can't think of an early nineties movie that was an example of that. Like late nineties, that you started to really, really see it. Oh, that, that's when they you know, started doing stuff digitally. That's when every movie turned yellow. Um, right, right, right. Everything, every movie turned piss fucking yellow. But I, I think just like, um, you know, there's definitely a progression of like really cleaning up and sharpening blacks. Hmm. I mean, movies just, I mean, really just looking, you know, just sharper and sharper. Um, and w- which, I mean, there's also uh, that kind of, uh, you, you know, also think that because when you're watching older movies, you're watching movies that have, uh, or the film is faded. Yeah, sure. individual moments in the transformation scene stuck with me and it's not i mean the the stretching hand thing was really effective and you're right and and one of the things i liked about it is that it showed the same effect from two angles like it was his pov showing the back Mm -hmm. of his hand as the hand stretched and then it (laughs) cut or flipped around and showed the same hand stretch effect uh, including his reaction to it yeah they really built that thing and that they uh, but but also like I really I re- I remembered the way his parts of his foot stretched really similarly as he was on all fours. I remembered the really tight shots of the hair pushing out of his back. Oh, which when they great the hair effect. is moving. Um, that, that was when you were talking about editing. I actually wanted to bring up um, the editing on the, on on the transformation was I mean so much of what it made made it great was yeah. uh, was in the editing. Um, 
Yeah, and 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 it's because you know now that every individual shot was a separately planned practical effect. And so you have to edit them together as if it's one continuous transformation, which is difficult, right? Like you with a computer generated transformation, it can all be one continuous transformation. With this each like the stretching of the face, the stretching of the hand, the hair stretching out his his reactions to this and that and the fingernails and all this stuff they're all have to be individually planned effects shots and so editing them together into one cohesive transformation seems like it would be extremely difficult and watching it you can see that each one is its own effect right but it's also really feels convincingly like one broader transformation of a human being into another form it's there, there's something um i mean which also I think comes a lot from the editing that's just uh, so, I mean, emotionally uh, grabbing is, and I feel like it's really, uh, it really captures the fact that he's watching this happen. They have, I mean, so many yeah. point of view shots and so many, oh, yeah. you know, him looking and the fact that they save, I mean, it, you know, it almost looks weird. The fact that they don't start the face transformation till later, but it really yeah. works emotionally <laughs> that his whole body has changed while you, you see that, you know, he's, he is still, the last thing to go is his human is his humanity, um, and hmm. and so so I really love like the first and it was a pretty quick shot like the first full body shot where he's just kind of stretched out and kind of you see him looking down at his body and just reacting mm. to that and mm -hmm. uh, yeah I, I, that was a very emotionally effective scene. I also love how quick uh, how quick it hits and how I mean how they really just yeah. give, give you you know, two minutes of him just puttering around the house before it happens <laughs> and, and not really like him even worrying or pacing or anything. Just like, yeah, he's just kind of bored and there's darts on TV and <laughs> what, what the fuck England darts on TV. It's <laughs> like walking around being bored and then it just, it hits and it's, and then he, he just abruptly starts screaming <laughs> and he rips his shirt in half within just a, a couple of seconds of the beginning of the mm -hmm. shot. And, and it's not belabored at all. And and there's no musical. Here. It's there's so no, yeah. important that he doesn't fuck that scene up as an actor. Mm -hmm. And again, he fucked up a lot of scenes for me <laughs> as an actor. But the important scenes he pulled off, and that that most importantly was with that one. And you're right, and I hadn't thought about it that that a lot of it is because his POV and his head are are the last things to change, and um, and so you are there with him in horror of this bodily transformation thing that was really unprecedented. Do you think that the, uh, the most horrifying component of that is, you know, Oh my God, what's happening to my body? Or is it the realization that he's going to become a, a, a killing animal that just demolishes people? What, what do you think? Aaron? Um, I didn't get, I mean, I, I just, I felt it was, I mean, just, just the sense of shock and just, just kind of a pure physicality. I mean, I don't. Uh, you don't have time time to think about it. <laughs> First time you turn into a werewolf. Um, I think thematically it works that he was worried and worried and worried that this would be what something that would happen to him, but he never quite took it seriously enough because it's everyone around him told him that was a silly delusion, and now he's realizing that well, it wasn't. But no, I, I I totally I totally agree that that the the power of that scene is in the immediacy of the body horror. Yeah, it's yeah. He he is in he is in shock. Uh, yeah, and 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 whether whether he would 
whether he thought he was going to go on to kill people remorselessly or not, the horror is that he's seeing his his own precious body being just like wrecked and distorted <laughs> in these horrifying ways, and and ways that film had never captured before. Also, so it so the audience gets to feel that with him. I'm going to the police. Jack was right. Jack is dead. Jack is dead and six people are dead. There's going to be a full moon tonight. I'm going to the cops. David, please be rational. Let's go to Dr. Hirsch. Yeah, be rational, sure. I'm a fucking werewolf, for Christ's sake. David! Officer! Officer, I killed those people last night. You did, did you? He's playing a silly joke. You be quiet. We had an argument. He's being silly. I don't know this girl. All right, you two. Move along, right? Come on, David. Look, come on, I want you to arrest me, you asshole. There's no call for that kind of language. Queen Elizabeth is a man. Prince Charles is a faggot. Winston Churchill is bullshit. That's enough. No, let David, go of me. please. Shakespeare's French. Fuck. Shit. Cut. Shit. Come on, that's enough. Hey, David, please. Who is this person? If you don't stop this disturbance, I shall arrest you. That's what I want you to do, you moron. He's very upset. His friend was killed. Will you shut up? All right, it's quite enough. Come on, about your business. Right. Yeah, all in all, um, you know, despite the blemishes, and there are many, uh, I think it was, it was a very enjoyable film. It still is. Uh, I don't think I'm going to watch it for a while. I think <laughs> six times in this short period is... <laughs> Enough to fill you know fill me up for a while, but um, it's definitely going to be one that I come back and revisit at some point. I think it was this this movie not only was really really effective to audiences on its own, but also really influential to to horror movies that came after it. Absolutely, I, I mean when I watch uh, just about any horror movie, and it's really it's Rick Baker's fault that this happens. I'm always judging them off of their werewolf. <laughs> design like for for whatever reason I can't watch another horror movie with a, a werewolf in it without just immediately going eh it's alright I mean <laughs> looks like a rubber dog mask and it's no uh, it's no werewolf in London let's say that do you know what else um, he's worked on who Rick Baker mm-hmm. uh, he did Hellboy actually I, I do know he's uh, he did Harry and the Hendersons uh, <laughs> he did work on the Frighteners uh, all of the Men in Black movies. I mean, the guy, the guy has definitely earned his stripes. Mm-hmm. He's he's a high, highly skilled uh, craftsman. Yeah, I wish I um, remembered the story about uh, them getting that effect. Uh, I mean, I guess that's an effect he built, you know, for the Howling, and then I can, he I can tell you the, the, the minimal version of it that I know. I mean, not that this is podcast worthy or whatever, but just because it seems to be torturing you and I. I know part of the story. I think that uh, the director approached that visual effects guy to create these effects and then backed out because the movie wasn't necessarily going to be made at that point. So Mm -hmm. then when the howling got picked up and that was something that was going to be produced, that was something that was going to be funded and and that they had these plans to actually execute on. Then when American Werewolf in London started filming shortly after that, it's like, come on back. Remember, remember how we planned out all these effects together? And the guy's like, well, I'm kind of working on the howling now. And uh, John Landis was like, you know what? Fuck the howling. Come back to me. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy did. And of course, the rest is history. It's some To some extent, I think 
and and again, this is based on my super incomplete understanding of the scenario. The howling was started with the expectation that those effects were going to go into the howling, mm-hmm. and then they, they kind of swooped away into American yeah. Wolf in London just because they'd been originally conceived as part of American Wolf London. But that was way before that was actually a movie that mm-hmm. was going to be produced or made. And if the howling had those effects, it would have been so much better. Hmm. Uh-huh. The Howling was a great movie. It um, would have been so much better, though. Uh, it would have been it would have been everything that American Werewolf was, but also The Howling. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a really special episode to get the two of you in the same room <laughs> and the three yeah. of us talking about a movie together. Uh, I this think is, the uh, three-person format is a good a good thing. I'm glad to finally bring together two popular <laughs> co-hosts of the podcast together for the first time. Just kiss. Just kiss, uh, you guys. Thanks, just kiss Jesse. each other. That's sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I am poorly planned for this episode, but I have one scratch-off lottery ticket, and I'm going to scratch it off right now for us. Right, if we win a million dollars, we'll split it three ways. All right. Our cool number is 46. I'm scratching off cool nines. We have five chances to get the same number as 46. Did we win? Almost. This is the really entertaining part of the podcast that the listeners clamor for. (laughs) We got 45 and 48. We lost on that scratch-off lottery ticket. Sorry, guys. On a scale of 1 to 1,000, where do you put American Werewolf in London? 780. 780? Yeah, that seems reasonable. I'll go with Aaron on 780. Uh, wait, uh, wait, wait. 910. I think I would say 910. I needed... Yeah. Wait, 46 was the first number, and then I needed 9? Nine, 9 more? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how do I get to 1,000? I'm, I'm, I'm confusing your number situation here. a little bit. The scratch-off lottery ticket has nothing to do with the rating I'm now currently asking you for. Okay. Okay. In that case, uh, yeah, nine, 900. 800. 9, 800. Yeah, 910 seems like a particularly high score. Like, what's what's 1,000 here? Okay, so on a scale of 1 to being mauled by a vicious werewolf, right? where, where would you put this film? So 1 is I, I f- the least werewolf <laughs> mauling? I feel like this movie mauled me like a vicious werewolf. Emotionally. Oh, I hope this podcast comes back to haunt you like your dead friend. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I want I want that brutalized Jack to just show up in other movies like just kill yourself. <laughs> I want him to show up in romantic comedies <laughs> and just be like, "You know what? You you and she are probably never going to work it out. <laughs> probably kill yourself." Oh. <laughs>
For our next episode, Aaron and I have invited uh, Nunk to be on the show for the first time. He'll be joining us to talk about the 2000 film Unbreakable, and we're really looking forward to that. Nunk's on the road at the moment, but I was able to get him to dial in. He, Aaron, and I are going to have a quick chat about what we expect going into it and why we picked this movie to do next. So I have Nunk and Aaron both here, uh, and we are going to talk about what we're looking for going into watching Unbreakable. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. Do you want to talk about why what, what made this particular movie jump out as the one to talk about? Yeah. When we were t- discussing uh, movies that might be good, uh, your opinion seemed to be that uh, we, sh- we should have movies that we have opposite opinions about. At that point, I hadn't really, I had, I'd only seen Unbreakable once in the theater, but I have a very distinct memory of coming out of the theater uh, with you. And in my mind, it was undeniably a really good movie. And I looked over at you and said, that was great. And I think you scrunched up your face into a, a horrible <laughs> scowl and, and just did I make shook a, your head. Did I make a little jerk off motion? No, I think I think you just sort of like crunched your face up and shook your head no and said, no, nah, I didn't like it. It's a little unlike me to say I didn't like it instead of just saying, no, the movie was not good. <laughs> right. I don't, I'm not sure. I, I'm not quoting you here. I, I, I just remember being surprised. Or no, you you're like wrong. It. That's what it might, might be what I said. Oh, no, that's factually that, incorrect. That, that sounds familiar. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna make that. I'm just gonna allow that to overtake that memory. So sure. no, you're wrong. <laughs> but, but you, you seem just unimpressed, and I was just shocked hmm. that, that that this was a movie that we were gonna have a difference of opinion about. Yeah, definitely. My memory of it was um, liking it, but definitely not getting what the big deal was. Not liking it hmm. as much as whoever showed it to me my guess is i'm definitely gonna like it a lot less on the rewatch hmm. can we get I'm a ruling sure. on can we get a ruling on how to pronounce the last name of the director i i think i pronounce it different every time i say it. yeah somebody call in let us know yeah just give us a call <laughs> the lines are open <laughs> i mean around the time he was a real popular director everyone just called him shamalama what you and whatever mm-hmm. which is sort of i don't know kind of shitty i think now in hindsight yeah. <laughs> so i don't really want to do that but i also i don't know i've butchered every single name of every single actor or director i've said on this entire show so i guess not too surprising if i butcher this famously butcherable one but uh, the reason i ask is because i want to i just wanted to mention that um contrary to what aaron just said i i've revisited a couple of his movies i rewatched uh the village and i rewatched signs and both of those had grown on me actually neither of them are perfect movies and they're a little bit you know i i don't know kind of a little more mass appeal pulpy stuff than i than i'm not than than i can get real excited about but i was still kind of had a fondness for them um the Village especially was a real maligned by critics movie, especially Roger Ebert's review of The Village was one of my fav- favorite movie takedowns ever. Although I kind of disagreed with them. I kind of thought it was, I had a fondness for the characters and the the momentum of the plot. Um, I've never seen Signs or The Village. So I'm interested to rewatch Unbreakable. Um, you, I, I think you're right that a movie that we have different 
takes on makes a more interesting conversation, although not necessarily. I mean, Aaron right. and I had real similar takes on Attack the Block, and I still thought that was a real enjoyable episode to record. Maybe one of us will come around, or maybe we'll switch positions. Possible. Maybe I'll love it and you'll hate it. It's, it's very possible. And this was this was before, you know, every second movie was a superhero movie. Well, this um, was right around the time of all those superhero movies. I think X-Men was coming out right around then. Hmm. I feel like a lot of those, like it was a time for superhero movies, but maybe I'm mis- misremembering it. Yeah, maybe it was in... Maybe the first Spider-Man movie I don't know, was around was, that time? It was like Spider-Man maybe. and X-Men that really started the, we're going to do every property. What's a good thing to keep an eye out for when you're watching the movie? Something that's, uh, I don't I don't always agree with, but the really obvious, he uses some really obvious... Uh, cinematography techniques to sort of draw parallels hmm. in the movie. True. But yeah, I mean, I think definitely the interesting thing for me is going to be seeing, I mean, so, so much of, the, you know, what worked about it, what or I thought was, you know, the reveals and the twists. And, uh, you know, that often makes a rewatch a little less interesting. So, it, I mean, it will be, it'll be interesting to see if... Uh, the other elements hold up uh, without that. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't see the village or signs. Hmm. And I guess I, I haven't seen any movie since <laughs> Unbreakable that, that M Night Shyamalan has done. I yes. do want to watch his. Just um, agree on M Night Shyamalan. Then I think Shyamalan <laughs> is what we're going to have to go with here. I'll go back and dub in the correct pronunciation later. Got it. I really hope that we're pronouncing his middle name correctly. <laughs> <laughs> If, if, if that were the twist, that would be so perfect. <laughs> the final reveal is that it's not. Well, cool. I really am looking forward to revisiting it, despite my earlier apparently begrudging response to it after we watched it together. Um, Me too. You'll be able to watch Unbreakable uh, any number of ways. I'll put together links, as always, uh, for this and every movie we talk about at inthecut.org, where you'll be able to go and watch the movie. And then I hope uh, you do so and come back to join us. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Nunk. Thank you. Talk to you soon. All right.